And today uh, we're going to be reading two passages, which are both in your booklet, so you can follow along. And uh, Tom will be uh, speaking on those passages. Uh, So first we're going to be reading Matthew, uh, which is a biography of Jesus, uh, especially focusing on his three years of active ministry. Uh, And then after that, uh, we're going to be reading from 1 John, which is a letter from the Apostle John to one of the uh, first century churches. Uh, So we're going to read from uh, Matthew uh, chapter 22, uh, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, And then from 1 John, uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now we're going to hear from Tom. Well, good afternoon everyone. It's really good to have you with us. Take a moment to set up these computers. And a special welcome to those of you who are not regulars at the Christian Union. Uh, If you don't know me, I'm one of the staff with Christian Union. Uh, I come in on a regular basis to help teach the Bible for the the whole club. Well, I want to begin by asking you how you think about God. What is God like? I suspect many people think of God a bit like this. Is God like Santa Claus? Well, when you're a little boy or girl, you know that you're going to get presents on the condition that you have been good. I've been told that if you are naughty, apparently you get a lump of coal in your stocking. But since nobody ever gets a lump of coal in their stocking, I assume that means we're all really good people. Santa Claus tells us so. And the great thing about Santa Claus, he requires nothing in return. If you want to write him a letter, you can, but you don't have to. It makes no difference. In fact, even if you do write him a letter, it makes no difference. I remember as a child writing a letter to Santa Claus asking for a gun that shoots lightning bolts. And I never got it. But you don't have to have a relationship with Santa Claus. You never have to communicate with him in any way. All you have to do is live up to some arbitrary standard of goodness 
Which, by the way, is a really low standard because everybody passes. And so as long as you meet that low, arbitrary standard of goodness, you can be assured that when the day of reckoning comes, when when it's Christmas time, you're going to get your presents. You will be rewarded. It's very simple. As long as you're a good person, you are fine. You have nothing to worry about. Well, it makes us wonder, is God like that? Is it simply the case that we can say, as long as I have not killed anybody, as long as I haven't stolen anything that was too expensive, then God and I, we should be fine. No problems. But it makes you wonder, is God's standard really that low? Is it really as simple as just don't kill anybody and be nice? Now, the big question that we have before us today, why become a Christian? The answer I'm aiming to demonstrate today is that we have fallen short of God's standard. That means we are in big trouble. We have a problem with God. But in Jesus Christ, we have a solution to that problem. And that is why we need to become a Christian. So let's consider what actually is God's standard Are we really so bad that God should reject us? So I'm going to read to you again some of the words from our first Bible reading. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. There it is. That is the standard that God requires, clear and simple. Love God with your whole heart and love your neighbour as you love yourself. So now the important question for us is, how do you go living up to that standard? Have you kept these commandments? We're going to look at each of these two in turn. Firstly, do you love God with your whole heart? Now, most of us know from the outset that the answer, of course, is no. Now, even if you are a Christian, even if you are religious and you genuinely do love God, you still know that you have not loved God with your whole heart and mind and soul. Your love is very much imperfect. But for most people, for most Australians especially, we don't really love God at all. We just ignore him push him to the side and treat him like he doesn't really exist. And we expect God should be okay with that. Now, I want to deal with an objection that may be raised at this point. Why would God command us to love him? Like, that seems a bit unreasonable. I can understand why you might think, I don't like the idea of a God who commands us to love him. I mean, suppose for a moment, I commanded you to love me. Okay, so here we go. I, Tom Conyers, I command all of you to love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. It's crazy. I even feel a bit embarrassed pretending to say that. 
But here's my question for you. Why is that wrong? Why is it wrong for me to command you to love me? The answer is very simple. I am not worthy. See, I'm just another ordinary guy. I'm just like all of you. I have the same flaws, the same faults, the same imperfections. I am your equal. And I have no right to elevate myself above you. But what about God? You see, God is not your equal. God is not filled with flaws like we are. God is not just another guy. No, if God is God, then it is right for him to expect us to love him and to worship him. God is worthy to be worshipped. It's another reason why God is worthy. That is because God is the creator. If God has created everything, okay, he's put the stars in the sky, and that means that every single good thing that you have ever, ever enjoyed in your life was given to you as a gift by God. More than that, he even created you and me. So we actually owe our very lives, our existence to God. Now, if that is true, if it's true that God created us, that means that there is a naturally occurring relationship between us and God. And that's a relationship that carries obligations of love and worship. Now, you see, there's different kinds of relationships. Some relationships are naturally occurring and others are not. So one that's not naturally occurring. If you want to go on a date with someone, one of you handsome young men decides that you want to ask a girl on a date, well, if you want to, go ahead and ask. But if you don't want to, you have no obligation whatsoever. It's entirely opt-in. And if you do pluck up the courage and ask that girl on the date, if she wants to, she can say yes. And if she doesn't want to, she can say no. It's entirely opt-in. But there's other kinds of relationships that are not like that. So, for example, your relationship with your parents. That is not opt-in. You don't get to decide whether you will have these people as your parents or those people as your parents or no parents at all. It is a naturally occurring relationship that brings with it obligations and responsibilities. And so it is right to expect a child to love their parents. Now just imagine for a moment that you became a parent. Now I know for some of you that is a terrifying thought. Just imagine, you have a child. Okay, for the ladies, that means you had to give birth to that baby. Okay, for the guys, let's just imagine you didn't make it to the hospital on time. You had to deliver the baby yourself. Now, you do everything for this child. You lose hours and hours of sleep for months on end, getting up and calming down the crying baby in the middle of the night. You feed the baby. You teach this child all sorts of things. 
You help them with their homework. You teach them how to play sport, how to play music. You do everything for them. You will bend over backwards to provide your child who you love with everything that they need. But your child hates your guts. They'll happily take everything that they can from you. They'll borrow your car anytime they feel like it without asking. They'll eat all of your food. They'll use all of your stuff. They'll live in your house under your roof. But they will never even acknowledge your existence. They never say thank you. They don't love you. They show you no respect whatsoever. They never even speak a word to you. Is that okay? Like, are you fine with that? Well, stop and think about it. Is that how you treat God? God is the one who gave you life. You live in the world that God created. Every good thing you enjoy is given to you by God. You enjoy his stuff, but then do you treat him like he does not even exist? You never say thank you, you do not love him, and you do not worship him as the God who he is. Now, is that okay? Is God supposed to be fine with that? See, loving and worshipping God, it's not some optional extra, like a hobby for religious people who enjoy that kind of thing. If God is our creator... That means there is a naturally occurring relationship that brings obligations and responsibilities of love and worship. It is right for God to expect us to love him. So, back to that commandment. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind? Anyone who's honest with himself knows that the answer to that is no. Let's see if we do any better with the second command. The second great commandment is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. So do you love your neighbour as yourself? Well, how you answer that question will depend a little bit on how you use the word love. Now, we use the word love to mean all kinds of different things. Sometimes we use the word love to mean be nice. Just be polite. Sometimes we use the word love to describe warm, fuzzy feelings, like when you see a cute child smile at you and it makes you feel good. Sometimes we use the word love to simply mean having sex. And here's another way we use the word love. I love pizza. Yeah, I I, I very much love pizza. I hope you love pizza too. I'll be suspicious of you if you don't. (laughs) Now, when I say that I love pizza, what do I mean? For those of you who can't see, there's another one on the screen. (laughs) Do I care for the pizza? Do I show love and affection to my pizza? Do I care about what is in the best interests of the pizza? (laughs) No! No, I'm going to consume this pizza. As soon as this meeting is done, this is lunch. Okay? Because I love 
what I get out of it. I love how it makes me feel. Wonder, do you ever love people like pizza? Those of you who might be in a relationship, maybe you're married. Perhaps you might have said to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your husband or your wife, you might have said words like, I love you. But deep down, what you really meant was, I love what I get out of you. You are my favourite consumer product. Of course, you'd never articulate it that way, would you? You see, that's not love at all. We use the word love, but it's actually described in pure selfishness. And it's not just romantic relationships that are like that either. We're quite capable of treating our friends like pizza as well. Now you see, when Jesus says, love your neighbour as yourself, he's not talking about pizza love. No, he's talking about the kind of love that is self-sacrificial. The kind of love that puts the interests of the other person before your own. It's the kind of love where you are willing to suffer, to go without what you want for the benefit of another. Now, I imagine for most of you, you can think of a time where you may have loved somebody like this. But the question is not, have you ever loved anybody like this? The question is, do you always love your neighbour as yourself? And if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, we need to recognise that we are selfish. We do not love our neighbour as ourself. The second great commandment is to love your neighbour as yourself, and on that one also, we fail. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that your life was recorded on film every moment of every day and it's all right here on this DVD. It contains everything you've ever done, every lie, every dirty little secret, every lame excuse, every time you've looked at pornography, everything that you are ashamed of, it's all on here. Now suppose that I invited all of your friends and family, now let's make it bigger, I invite the entire world to come and watch this DVD. How would you feel? (laughs) I don't know anybody who would be happy to let the whole world see all their secrets to see all of their secret hidden sins, the things that they are ashamed of. I don't know anybody who would be happy to see that. Because we recognise, deep down in our hearts, that there is evil in here. I'm going to be really honest with you. I think the only way anybody can deny that there is evil in their hearts is if it's because they're simply too afraid to confront the truth about themselves. It's very easy to live in a world of make-believe where you just tell yourself nice things and never have to confront difficult truths. And I can't think of any truth that is more difficult and more frightening to confront 
than the reality of evil that is in our own hearts. You see, we are not good people. Santa Claus may make us feel like we are good people because we never got that lump of coal in our stocking, but we are not. We are sinners who are guilty of rebellion against God and God is not okay with it. We are, in fact, deserving of God's judgment. So now, with all that doom and gloom and bad news, I now have some good news. Our good news is that God loves us even while we are undeserving. And he has done something remarkable. In our second Bible passage that was read for us, it's there in your handouts, the reading from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, second sentence from the bottom, it says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, even while we treat God so poorly, while we treat each other so poorly, for all of our faults, for all of our flaws, for all that evil that is in our hearts, even then, God loves us and does the most extraordinary thing for us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Now, I know some of you are asking, what on earth is an atoning sacrifice? Well, let me explain what it is that Jesus has done for us. I want you to imagine that this row of lights up here represents God. My hand here represents you. Coming down from heaven, from God, like the light, is God's love, his blessings upon you. You have this relationship with God. That's wonderful. Except, remember this, all that we have done wrong, all of our failures, they cut us off from God, forming a barrier between us and him. So as long as you have sin against you, as long as you have evil deeds against you, you are cut off from God, from his blessings, and you are going to face his condemnation and judgment. Now imagine this other hand is Jesus Christ. Jesus has come down into this world from heaven, born as a baby. He grew up and has lived a life of perfect obedience. You see, he never sinned on him. There is nothing to be ashamed of. There is nothing to cut him off from God. And here's what Jesus has done for us. This is what the atoning sacrifice is. When Jesus was dying on that cross, being crucified, see, all this sin, all the evil that we have done, gets taken off us and it gets put upon him instead. Jesus suffers and dies to pay the punishment we deserve for all of the evil that we have committed. He suffers, he dies, and he pays the penalty for sin in full. And once he has died, I'm hoping this will break. Or it will bend. (laughs) Let's give that another go, eh? That's more like it. 
Pick the right brand of CD for the illustrations. I'll clean that up later, by the way. That record of all that you have done is gone. It is obliterated. Now there is nothing left to separate you from God. Nothing to stand between you and God's blessings, the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus has done it for us. You see, it's not what you have to do to live up to God's standard. It's what Jesus has done for us to take away our sin and to reconcile us to God. That is what 1 John means when he says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, the big question before us today, why should you become a Christian? It is because we are not right before God on our own. It is because we are guilty and headed for God's judgment. It is a desperate situation. But for those who will become a Christian, who will give their lives to Jesus Christ, to follow him, to trust him as their king, as their saviour, instead of wrath and judgment, we get forgiveness, certainty of eternal life, reconciled with God. I hope that's good enough reason for you. Now, where to from here? I recognise that there are several of you in this room who are still exploring this whole Christianity thing. I want to suggest to you that becoming a Christian is a little bit like getting married. When you get married, you are committing your entire life to another person. It's a very big deal. So if you're going to give your whole life to another person, you want to be pretty confident that you're making a wise decision. You want to be confident that you can trust them. So it's probably a good idea to take the time to get to know them for a while before you decide whether you will commit and get married or whether you will break it off and go separate ways. Now, in the same way, becoming a Christian might involve investigating the gospel for a very, very long time. It might be years. Just like some couples will date for years before they get married. But for others of you, it might be very short. I know someone who proposed to a girl on their first date. Some of you may know Ben Ray. (laughs) They're now happily married. Now, in the same way, for some of you, You may have heard this message about Jesus and it might only be a short time, it might be new to you, but you might be ready to make that commitment, to hand your life over to Jesus Christ. But either way, whether it's a short time or a long time, at some point you need to make a decision. You cannot date forever. At some point you need to decide, will you commit your life to Jesus To become a Christian, or will you reject it and go separate ways? Personally, I am wholeheartedly convinced that this is true. I'm prepared to stake my life upon it. And so that is why I think all people should become Christians.
very much.